previously on Hacker Valley Red. The hacker mindset involves looking at what people think of as the status quo, the accepted norm, and questioning it. If you're not letting kids break into the scrapyard nowadays because they're going to get caught or get arrested, where where are you giving them that space? If you don't have room to do it wrong, you're going to not get it right when you need to. We have to either evolve to turn faster and evolve quicker, or we're going to be a joke. Axonius has crossed the chasm, the first company to solve the cybersecurity asset management problem. Gartner has recognized cyber asset attack surface management chasm as a category in their hype cycle for network security 2021 report. Axonius gives its customers a comprehensive, always up-to-date asset inventory, helps uncover security gaps, and automates as much of the manual remediation as you want. Take a look at Exonius and give your teams time back to work on the high-value cyber initiatives they were trained to do. Welcome back to Hacker Valley Red, exploring the hacker's mind. And speaking of Red, our guest is Alyssa Knight. And Alyssa talks to us about fire and how it can burn a large amount of people if not tamed. But the perspective of FIRE we're looking at this episode is fast healthcare interoperability resources. And that's a long-winded way of describing the data formats for healthcare. Alyssa is a true expert in this craft of hacking and leaves technology better than when they found it. This is one of my favorite episodes this season, so sit back and enjoy the episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back (laughs) to the show. Glad to be back again with one of our favorite guests of all time. In the studio today, we have Alyssa Knight. Alyssa is a cybersecurity filmmaker, author, investor, hacker, and pretty much does everything. I can't wait to get into this conversation again. Welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks, Ron. Thanks, Chris. It's so good to be here. I, I you know, coming on this show is kind of like coming back home. I feel like <laughs> I feel like it's that Folgers commercial during Christmas right. time where, you know, <laughs> the, the, the college student, you know, child comes back home. And anyway, yeah, I thank you. It, I feel at home when I'm here. Oh, no, that's so good. You know, we had to do Hacker Valley Red again, and we try to keep it different every season, but we thought we got to bring our favorite hacker back onto the podcast to talk about the latest and greatest in research and mindset. But first, before we get to any of that, for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Yeah, for those living under a rock, the last few, no, just kidding. Um, yeah, I guess if a hacker and a filmmaker were to have a baby, I would be the the, the product of that. So I'm, I'm, I like to say I'm a recovering hacker of 21 years. Um, so I, you know, typical Hollywood story, arrested for hacking into a government network when I was 17, went to go on to start um, some cybersecurity startups and sold those. Uh, also... Gosh, published author, went to work for the U.S. intelligence community in cyber warfare. I'm working on a screenplay for a new TV series. 
I am everywhere. I am doing everything. <laughs> I'm trying to cram as many lifetimes into a single lifetime <laughs> as I can. So when when I die, Ron and Chris can be at my funeral and giving my eulogy and saying, Alyssa lived well. <laughs> That's the plan. You know, it's funny. That was my philosophy ever since I was a little kid. I knew about mortality quite young. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, you know what? You get one life. Let's do everything. Let's do Hell it all. Yeah. So Hell I've yeah. been living like that to this day. And I, I would say that it's not a bad way to live. You get to do a lot of cool things and meet a lot of cool people like yourself. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so I, I've uh, the feeling is mutual. You know, I, I'm definitely having a good time. And to me, that's what life is all about is learning new things. And, you know, I think that's probably the most exciting thing about the research that I do is I, I get to play with so many different things that I'm attempting to break and learning so much along the way. I think the biggest misperception about hackers is that we just come out of the womb knowing how to do this stuff. <laughs> and this couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you know, we, we really are our students in every single engagement, and at least I am. And when I walk into a new vulnerability research campaign, I'm, I'm learning, I'm, I'm understanding, I'm trying to figure things out because you can't break something until you understand how it works. A hundred percent. And that's exactly why we wanted to bring you on for this season. A lot of the times as hackers, we look at one specific thing and we say, how does this thing work? Well, let me tinker with it. What are the upper limits of what it, this thing is able to do? And, but you uh, seem to approach things very differently. You tend to look at entire sectors and say, okay, how can I own this entire sector? So what really goes into <laughs> All of those, the, the selection of targets, what goes into what piques your interest in the beginning and you tumble down this rabbit hole. What's a little bit about the, the right before you get to the research part of it? I think it's the product of, of uh, a healthy amount of arrogance. <laughs> Some people are like, I'm going to hack this one server or this one app. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to take on the entire industry. Um, no, uh, yeah. I, you know, it, it's interesting um, that... And I'm assuming, you know, you're talking about like, if you look at my 2019 research into hacking 30, 30 banks, their mobile apps and APIs in 2020, it was 30 mobile health apps and APIs. And now this year it's fire, you know, and I, I think for me, it's when you have a vulnerability in a particular technology, it tends to affect more than one victim. And so for me, it's just a natural byproduct of what I'm doing that, for example, in the, the fire API research it, it, this was uh, a regulation that was imposed by the Center for Medicare Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is CMS, and the ONC or Office of National Coordinator for Health IT, uh, passed this as a result of the 21st Century Cures Act signed by President Obama, in that patients needed to be in control of their own patient data, and so I knew that I couldn't just target a single healthcare provider or a single EHR system, I it really was the entire industry. And so it was interesting that you italicized those words because it's it's true. It's I tend to go after entire industries. So I have to ask, because I'm sure someone's wondering, they just heard that you've hacked fire. What exactly is fire? And you know, talk about some of the importance there um, regarding fire. You know, six months ago, I couldn't answer that for you, Ron. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I did an, I did a, a, a nauseating, just nauseating amount of research into this. And you know, um, 
So FIRE, spelled F-H-I-R, not F-I-R-E, stands for <laughs> Fast Healthcare Interoperability and Resources. Basically, what it does is it makes our healthcare data portable. So for example, before FIRE, before this interoperability, if you went to, let's say you 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 sprained an ankle, you went to one health, you went to uh, one hospital, and then you travel, and then you're in a different city, for example, and then that sprain turns into a broken ankle, and then you go to a completely new hospital. Now you have two completely different hospitals with completely disparate, disconnected systems that has healthcare data on you from both incidents. Before those systems couldn't talk, before that healthcare data couldn't be shared. With FIRE, what, what happened was it allows those systems to talk. It allows those healthcare providers to share data on Ron and his sprained and broken ankle. Uh, it also puts you in control of your own data. So let's say, for example, you wanted all of your healthcare data from your entire life, you would probably have to call each and every healthcare provider and have them fax or email or even in some cases ship you pieces of paper. With FIRE, uh, it allows you to be in control of your data when you need it. Uh, or those healthcare providers and payers are in danger of violating what's called the information blocking rule, which carries stiff penalties and fines for them if they don't make that data available to you to download. So the CMS and ONC came along, you know, and said, okay, in in support of the 21st Century Cures Act, we we have to support this, and we are adopting Fire as the standard now. Fire is a standard that was created by a, an organization called Health Level 7 International, or HL7. And they really were the, the original creators of what at the time was the standard called HL7. It was named after the organization. And it was this sort of protocol for you know, digital healthcare uh, and, and you know, information around your electronic health records. Uh, th they've since abandoned that, moved towards fire as the new standard, and uh, government came along and said, we're going to use that. That sounds like a good idea. We're going to use fire. And so that's really what the industry ended up adopting as the standard for making all of this healthcare portable. And then it's further complicated by this organization called SMART, which started out at Boston Children's Hospital. Look at me. I sound like an expert in this. I've worked in healthcare my whole life. Um, Only six I'm months. really just a hacker. I'm just a hacker who did her homework. Smart started out at Boston Children's and in Smart actually it was really interesting. See, I'm I'm weird. I'm really nerdy. I like I get turned on by stuff like this. Just like, <laughs> oh my god, what's the difference between Smart on Fire and Fire? So Smart actually their original mission was to make healthcare portable and allow these EHR systems, whether it's Cerner and Epic, to talk to each other. So one hospital could be running Cerner, one hospital could be running Epic, and these are major EHR platforms. And those platforms couldn't talk to each other. As a matter of fact, some hospitals would run different versions of Cerner, and those, those different versions, even though they're from Cerner, didn't talk to each other. So there was this huge problem of interoperability between EHR systems. And so the government went to um, uh, actually funded this project called SMART. And SMART originated out of a joint partnership between Boston Children's and I want to say Harvard Medical 
or Stanford Medical, one of the two. And um, uh, thus was born this 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 mission to pursue the capability to make this all portable and talk to each other. And uh, it 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 actually conflicted with what HL7 was doing. HL7 was actually making more progress in Fire and making more progress than Smart. And Smart said, you know what, we really need to stop sort of competing with this this fire standard, we need to do something different. So smart came along and said, we're going to change our mission. HL7 is doing these really wicked things with fire and this amazing stuff. We're not going to compete with that anymore. We're What we're going to do is we're going to be the app ecosystem that launches on top of these EHR systems. So we're going to call ourselves smart on fire. So when you want to, like if, if Ron and Chris were to start a startup company and create mobile apps, for CERN or Epic, they need a way to be able to launch those mobile apps within that EHR system. So we're going to be that infrastructure. So people who want to develop apps for these EHR systems will use this smart ecosystem. And they basically provide security and uh, through OAuth and OpenID to be able to secure those apps running on top of those EHRs. So there's think of the EHR platform as your medical records. On top of that uh, EHR system is Fire, which is basically the skeleton or infrastructure for how those EHR records should be formatted. So everyone is using the same format or skeleton. Mm -hmm. And then Smart on Fire is basically the security around that for um, authenticating and authorizing the apps and the individuals using it. I, I hope that makes sense, but it's basically like a layered thing. It makes perfect sense. But, you know, anyone with even a small percentage of a hacker's mindset will say you want high availability, right? Mm -hmm. You want interconnectivity across different applications, different organizations all together. Yeah, totally. And when you combine all of those things together, you think enhanced and bigger attack surface. So is that sure. really what you thought of immediately or did you approach this uh, egg a different way? Um, That's a good question. So... I, I definitely am a big believer that more features, more interoperability means more vulnerabilities. I really uh, actually walked into this. I'm going to actually fall on my own sword here and say that we were wrong. When we walked in, we were thinking that all of the vulnerabilities would be in the EHR systems, like the you know multi-million dollar Cerner or Epic implementations for the EHR platform itself. And again, just think about the EHR platform as like a big, huge database of all the patient records. So we were thinking that, well, the vulnerabilities have to be in that and their implementation of fire. So let's focus there. And we were wrong. I was wrong. We What ended up happening was all the vulnerabilities were being found in the third-party developers who were making apps for those fire APIs. And, and then we stumbled on this concept of a clinical data aggregator. Okay, so this is where it gets crazy. Okay, so sit down. Are you sitting down? This 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 is where it gets crazy. Okay, <laughs> this is it's getting it's gonna get really crazy. Okay, so get in the DeLorean and go back in time. So initially, the hospitals would run the EHR and they would hold your patient records, and your patient records would be in that EHR. Okay, so if you needed them, you'd have to go to that healthcare provider and get it from their EHR. Then. Fast forward to now with Fire and all this interoperability, there's startup companies who are creating these apps that that plug into them. So let's say, for example, a hospital wants 
to be able to pull in data from this connected medical device or this Fitbit or this, you know, whatever, and pull that data into their EHR. They would go to a third-party developer and say, give us an app that supports Fire and Cerner and can pull in patient Fitbit data into our EHR. Um, So you would go to that third-party developer and they would make the app and give it to you. Now there's this new economy of companies called clinical data aggregators who are pulling this medical data for Ron and Chris from thousands of hospitals in the United States and putting it in this massive database in this massive system. And these are called clinical data aggregators. And so they're, they're basically copying all this data, grabbing all this data. So instead of you going to thousands of hospitals to get your patient data, you would just go to one data aggregator and set up your account and then, you know, connect with these other hospitals. And they would actually call all this data for you into a single place. And so you would just go to this one provider, this one data aggregator, and get all your patient data. And then healthcare providers and pairs can do the same thing. So they can sell an aggregator account to a provider and say, hey, uh, Ron Hospital, you don't have to go and pull data from thousands of hospitals. You can pull it from just us and get all of the clinical data aggregated from a single database. Now, tell me, Chris and Ron, what that says in your mind. It's a single place for an attacker to go to get Mm -hmm. millions of patient records from thousands of hospitals in the US or around the world. So I was wrong. I walked into this thinking that Cerner and Epic, and it was funny, you guys, Cerner and Epic were very supportive. They came like, Alyssa, this is so amazing. You need to like do this research and we're going to support you and we're going to give you access to all of our fire APIs and our infrastructure. It was amazing. It was like this, this collegial kind of atmosphere where they were like, yes, we dig this. We're going to help you. We're going to support you. Stanford Medical Center reached out to me. It was amazing. Like when my first phase of my research came out on hacking M Health APIs and apps, um, there was this huge outcry of support and groundswell from the healthcare community that was like, we're worried about this. We care about this. We dig what you're doing. And so I was like, oh, hey, by the way, there's a phase two and I'm hacking fire. And so everyone's like, oh my God, this is great. We're going to, we're there. We're going to support you. And I thought the vulnerabilities would be in the Cerners of the world and Epics of the world and Athena Healthcare's of the world. And because they, you know, Cerner and Epic aren't the only EHRs. There's Athena there's, there's, you know, other EHRs and they were like, we're going to, you know, and I thought that's where the vulnerabilities would be. The vulnerabilities ended up actually being in this, these other layers of the onion, these third party developers and aggregators and Chris Ron, it's bad. Like, mm. like one of them, one of them, I could actually log in and I don't know if you saw that video I published yesterday or on Friday, but um, one of them actually gave me access to thousands of patient records just by logging in. So I could log in and th- for some reason, the API was sending me every single one of their patient records and what? they were relying on the app to filter it out. Yeah. Like, so I would log in as a listenite and it would give me all of the patient records and the, they were relying on the app to say, okay, if a listenite is logged in, only show her this record from all of the records we're sending you. And it's it's like they didn't understand, the developer didn't understand that I can send that same API request with an API client and 
see all of that data. So it's it's like a, a, a just a mass assignment vulnerability or something where they're relying on the API client. Um, excessive data exposure is is what the vulnerability is called with the API, OWASP API security top 10. But it's, it's yeah, it's set and get this, guys. It also sent me all the clinician data. So I got all of the patient data, all of the clinician data, and is and they were doing a match on my account to figure out which which data to to show. It was it was the craziest thing. Like it would scare you if you if you knew the details of every vulnerability that I found over the past six months. It's really bad. I mean, we're talking about patient records in the millions because of these <sighs> aggregators. I can only imagine. So, are you saying that when you logged into this website and the API sent you information back, it was really just the browser filtering all that, that information? Yeah, that's a good, so good question. So for, for your audience who don't know what the hell an API is like, what is this API Alyssa keeps talking about? Um, <laughs> so an API, think about an API like a waiter at a restaurant. Okay, so Ron, Chris, you and I go to dinner. We're sitting down at the table. We're like, hey, what do we want to order? What kind of food do we want to order? The, think of the waiter as the API. So the waiter is taking our food order and taking it to, into the back kitchen to give it to the chef to make that food. Think of the chef as the back end, right? So the 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 back end is the database. So let's say, for example, the chefs don't speak English; they speak Spanish. So it, on top of that, the waiter is also translating language. Like this is what Ron, Chris, and Alyssa want to order. So. Then the waiter brings the food back to us to eat and consume. So think of us at the table as the API client. The waiter is the API itself. And the back end is like the API endpoints, the database, the data. So that's all an API is. It's just translating requests back and forth between the back end and the client receiving it and client review, uh, wanting it. So uh, that's exactly what was happening, Ron, was I would log in. And they were relying on the web browser or the API client, or it could be a mobile app or a web browser and saying, okay, filter all of these results based on who's logged in. So if Ron is logged in, only show Ron's patient records. If Chris is logged in, just show Chris's. And so what it was doing was it was sending me everything from the database, (laughs) which was shocking because these are really large packets. And, and it was just filtering on that. But so it's almost like the developer didn't realize or didn't consider the fact that an adversary could come in, find out what that same API request is, and then pull all of the results from the database without even authenticating, without even, you know, providing the right username and password. I'm really liking this analogy. It reminds me of like this waiter being someone that's doing like an a la carte type of thing. They have this huge yeah. tray of food yeah. and they're like, oh, you're Alyssa. Here is your oh, plate. Oh, I love it, Ron. That's exactly <laughs> what this vulnerability is. It's like, here, hey, Ron, Chris, uh, let me show you every dessert we offer and you just pick the one that you want. That's exactly what's going on with this vulnerability. So this one particular aggregator, which is aggregating all this patient data, a lot of it is basically giving me all the information and and you and relying on me to filter out what is just pertinent to me and that's incredibly dangerous right because you you don't need the mobile app you don't need the web web app you can just load up an, a free api client like postman and and find out what that request is and then send that request with postman and you'll get all the data back it's insane it's insane and you know, here's the thing about PHI. This is this, and and I this is just conjecture because obviously I don't know for sure. But 
So so PHI is worth a thousand times more on the dark web. It's on sale for a thousand times more than a US credit card number. What? So yeah, and it's because of all of the data. Because if you look at this PHI data, it contains your social, your real name, your, your next of kin, everything that you give a hospital when you check in, like even some of these records, uh, medical records, had your photo. So it had the photo of the patient. So as the admissions, hospital admissions was in, was bringing people into the hospital, say for COVID, there was all of their patient data. There was even a patient, you know, photo or scan of their driver's license. So their ID, it had everything. So, you know, you would typically pay individually for this information on the dark web. So if you get a single record, you've got all this data in a single record, which is why I think it's worth so much on the dark web. You know, if we continue this analogy, if I am an attacker and I say, I am everyone and give me everything that's in the kitchen, it seems like there will be some input validation or some type of parameters that would keep you from ordering everything as everyone. Is that true? Or, or how, how do we go you about would, fixing that? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, and yeah, I agree that we could take this analogy all day long. But so I think ideally what you should do is you should implement what are called tokens and scopes. And you should say, okay, if Chris logs in, Chris should only be shown Chris's data from the database. Don't send me all of the patients and all of the clinicians and their data. Just send me Chris's because Chris is requesting that data. So I have another great analogy. So this is what's called broken object level authorization or bowl of vulnerabilities. So a great analogy for this is let's say Ron and I go to a cocktail party and Ron is wearing this expensive Burberry coat. I'm like, oh, I want that coat. I'm going to steal that coat. So Ron is in the coat check line and Ron checks his coat into the coat check and gets a number. And I see that they gave him number 18. And I come up behind him and he gives, and I, and I turn in my cheap coat that I bought from Marshall's for 20 bucks and <laughs> pick on Marshall's and uh, <laughs> not that they don't sell good clothes. They, they some good, good clothes. So, um, but um, I want Ron's coat. And so I get the number 17. So I take my ticket and I take a Sharpie and I change my seven to an eight and I go back to the coat check and I give them 18 and they give me Ron's coat. Like I'm authenticated, I'm allowed to be there so because I'm presenting a ticket, but I'm not authorized to bring home Ron's coat. And and so that's another reason why a lot of these APIs that are protected with uh with web application firewalls, it's the wrong security control for the job. Because the WAF, uh, which are typically designed to protect web applications, are not designed to protect APIs against an attack like this or what's called logic abuse where I'm authenticated, but I'm not Ron and I'm not authorized to be there or take home his coat. There's, you know, it's, it's the difference between authentication and authorization. That's a freaky analogy because the one expensive purchase I made in my life is a was Burberry, a Burberry jacket. <laughs> and you That's steal amazing. it. That's amazing. You're like, oh my God, Alyssa's hacked my home, uh, smart home devices. She knows I've got a Burberry coat. No, no, I did. I didn't know that. Um, that's amazing. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's the best way I can describe a, a you know a bowl of vulnerability, and it's it's that's and it's the most prevalent vulnerability finding that I've ever found with APIs, and it's it's just we're doing we're doing this so wrong, and it's it's really like if you look at a lot of the APIs, for example, that federal law enforcement vehicle hack that just went public. Um, 
the the reason I was able to remotely control those law enforcement vehicles like lock and unlock the doors or start and stop the engine was because of bullet vulnerabilities. I was I should have been authorized to perform those functions because I wasn't logged in as the correct individual. And that authentication and authorization uh, just wasn't there. And the most prevalent vulnerability I find in APIs are bullet vulnerabilities. It's just developers that are properly authenticating but not authorizing. I love your approach of performing these exploits. When I was coming up in cybersecurity, it was all about zero days and remote yeah. code execution. And at the end of the day, you're doing these types of activities, zero days, RCE, just to gain access to the data. And you're yeah. pretty much taking a shortcut. You're, you're going right to the communication vector and then just speaking to the database itself. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I you, you make a good point. And I mean, a lot's changed over the last 20 years. I remember those days too, you know, of getting your hands on the latest TESO zero-day exploit or whatever, WooFTPD exploit or Apache exploit. And now it's really about monetizing the data. And, and so I think, you know, the biggest recommendation that I have for you red teamers out there is if you don't know anything about JSON or, or hacking APIs, you really need to shift your focus and develop your craft in that area because... APIs, while you just blinked, uh, have now become the underpinning and plumbing for our entire infrastructure from financial services to the mobile app economy that we're in to healthcare. Everything is powered by APIs now. Um, so if you don't know about APIs and you don't know how to hack them, you really need to develop your craft and and go in that direction because hackers are focusing their attention on that too. You know, hackers are all about finding and monetizing data, in some cases, double dipping, like lock and leak, where you ransomware the company, you ransom the company for them to get their key back, but you also lock and leak it and and double dip and get your money by selling it on the dark web. Um, so, you know, I agree with you, Ron, that's, that's where the money is at, is data. It's worth more than oil now, <laughs> in some cases worth more than Bitcoin. Um, mm. But, you know, it's, if you don't, if you don't understand APIs and you don't understand their vulnerabilities, we're not going to get anywhere closer to trying to fix this problem. So when you look at your entire research body, when you're, when it comes to this subject, you've owned the restaurant, you, people can order whatever the heck they want. So now we gotta, we gotta fix it with this focus on the hacker's mindset. We always think about it from the offensive lens, but then it has to go to a defensive solution of some sort. When you take all this information from what you gathered as a researcher, how do we then take that information and do something to make a difference? Oh, okay. So yeah, and and that's what I love about what I'm doing, right? So you know, with with the research that I put put out there on the law enforcement hack, uh, I think I'm I'm pretty comfortable saying the automaker now, and you can look at the pictures and tell who it is. It's Ford. So uh, after some time, Ford did finally fix all the vulnerabilities in the vehicles that I identified uh, in the backend APIs. So I, I think that's one of the the best outcomes from you know, vulnerability research and these bug bounty programs. Like for example, Ford is a member of the Hacker One bounty platform. And for me, from my perspective, it's just making this a better, safer world. Because when you're talking about hacking APIs, you have the ability to affect life and safety, right? So your vehicle is communicating with backend APIs. So 
that's something you're driving around with your family and things have changed a lot as Ron brought up, you know, from the old days of zero day exploits and, you know, defacing websites to what it is now of being able to actually control passenger vehicles. Now I'm hacking connected trains and, and super yachts and all of those are all communicating with APIs. And so when you, when you talk about being able to control something like that, you're actually affecting life. Um, so I think being able to take that, uh, that the output of my research and look at the way the tactics and techniques that I'm using to compromise these APIs and compromise these apps, you, you, you can easily reverse from there on how to fix it. Oh, okay. She's, she's, uh, requesting to remotely control this vehicle and then approving that request on her own, we've failed to do a correlation between the logged in user ID and the token and you know the VIN number. So we're clearly not doing a correlation there. We need to fix that. So it's kind of like a different approach where traditionally you would start with the solution and trying to figure out a solution. And now we're starting with the problem. You know, we're reversing backwards from the symptom to find the cause right? And trying to fix the cause of that symptom. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And, and what's neat about this is, you know, I'm, I'm now 21 years in my career and I'm, I'm out of the bash shell and out of the interpreter shell where I know that I, you know, I just don't want to be in there for the sake of being in there. I I'm all about filmmaking and content creation, you know, and, and trying to weave those two worlds together. So now I'm, I'm hacking, but I'm, I'm combining that with my creative side and trying to create assets, content assets as a result of those compromises. So it's, I, I'm having a lot of fun. And, and at the same time, I feel like I'm making the world a better, safer place. That's one of the reasons why you're one of our favorite hackers is because you've learned to scale. Anyone could you know, join a bug bounty and fix one thing on one website for one company. But not only are you scaling hacking by looking at an entire sector or an entire technology, you're also scaling the delivery of that communication through content and all the reports that you do. For that person that's listening to this content right now, and they say, you know what? I want to do something similar. I want to scale my impact on my community. What is that one piece of advice that you would give that person oh, to scale man. their efforts? That's a good question. Um, this is going to be a, this is going to sound like a weird answer to your question, but I, I think it's, it's, you got to pedal backwards even further from that and say that before you even talk about scale or the, having the biggest impact on the widest scale, like that blast wave, so, so to speak, you need to first start with your passion, you know, because one of the things that I've always believed is, you know, if you're not passionate about what you're doing, if you had absolutely no fun doing it, and, and you really didn't care about what you were doing, and it didn't affect you at a visceral level, you can tell in the output. Like if you've ever gotten a, a, a report from somebody or even read a, re, a, a news story or something where you could tell that the person who wrote it wasn't passionate or didn't care about it or wasn't having fun. It's almost like if you're if there's no passion in yeah. what you're doing, the quality of the product isn't what it could have been. And the people that are consuming that information and the people you're affecting, it's almost like they can tell that passion wasn't there. So I think you need to first start with what it is that you're passionate about, because that's what will keep you up burning both ends of the stick, the candle, in order to learn what you need to learn in order to produce those results. Because even before I found vulnerabilities in Fire and these implementations, 
I had to read about who the hell the ONC was and who the CMS was and who and what is their relationship with HL7 and why are we here? What is Fire and why did we create it? What's the purpose of Fire? And having to you know, understand that and what fire is and the components and understanding that, well, wait a minute, this isn't vulnerabilities in the fire standard itself. This is vulnerabilities in the implementations because fire is just a blueprint. So I need to be careful and not go out there and say, hey, fire is vulnerable. What I need to be careful about is, hey, no, these are vulnerabilities in the specific implementations of fire because fire is just a blueprint. It's just a, a drawing for how you implement something. And what's happening is all these organizations are implementing them insecurely. So, you know, I think before you even figure out that question of how do I impact the most people and the broadest spectrum of outcome, you need to first be passionate about what it is you're doing, learn everything about it, and then, you know, take it apart and figure out what is that 80-20 rule? What is it that, you know, will affect 80% of, of my outcome with just 20% of effort. I'll be honest with you, I don't think I've even figured that out yet because I'm still trying to figure out how to make more time out of my day. I, I, I'm mm. sure you guys log in every morning wondering, oh my God, Alyssa's published another video. Oh my God, she's published another white paper. Oh my God, she's speaking at another conference. How, does this woman <laughs> even sleep? And that's the thing is I, I don't really sleep that much. And so I I, I appreciate the compliment of, of figuring out how to scale me, but I think I'm still, every day I'm still trying to figure out how to scale me even better and and uh, figure out a better way to do it. Well, we love what you do. And I think you're talking about that that product and the love that people can sense. I mean, that even goes to food, right? When yeah. Whenever you get a meal and you know there was no love in that meal, oh, yeah. you can taste it. Yeah. But when someone is a master of their craft and they know that, like, I want this person to enjoy my food, you can taste it. You can definitely taste it. Alyssa, thank you so much for hopping on the mics with us again to oh. give this masterclass on hacking and hacking at scale. Uh, but for the folks that want to stay up to date with you, your research, your content, what are the best ways that people can do that? Thanks, Chris. It's been a real pleasure being here. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, people definitely uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'm really trying to get more traffic to my YouTube channel and more watch time there. So subscribe to my YouTube channel, hit that bell icon. I upload new videos every week and live stream all of my latest research. As a matter of fact, when I break new vulnerability research, it actually shows up on YouTube first because I'm really big into filmmaking. Uh, and then you know, follow me on Twitter and, and connect with me on LinkedIn. I, I have an open door policy and I'm always trying to teach people new things and and impart my knowledge on them and appreciate all of my followers and fans. I, I wouldn't be anything without you. Excellent. And we appreciate you also. We'll be sure to drop all of those links and your YouTube channel in the show notes. Thank you for joining us again, and we'll see everyone next time. Thanks, Ron. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.